0: thanks bernadette good morning how's it going uh like bernadette said my name is Stephen. i'm one of the pastors here and we do say welcome if you're a guest uh, we want two things to happen we want you to feel welcomed and we want you to encounter jesus so i pray that that's what happens this morning for you and we're going to be continuing in our christmas series we've been looking at the prophecies Uh, about Jesus and his birth uh, from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And so we're going to continue with that. And I actually changed it, and I didn't tell Bernadette, so the title's different. (laughs) Admin fail. Uh, But this morning we're going to be talking a little bit about hope and what we place our hope in, in a God who's here with us, looking at a pretty famous uh, prophecy from Isaiah 7. But I thought first, what better way to start off? Anyway, I thought I'd start off with a joke. Not me, but an actual joke. (laughs) Cheesy pastor joke time. Good? Rob doesn't give those very often, so I figure I have to fill a void in your life. So here we go. What would Adam say on the day before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. (laughs) There you go. Cheesy pastor joke, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you didn't get it, you can laugh later. It's fine. I won't judge. Delayed, <laughs> delayed gratification is still gratification. I'm okay with it. Will you pray with me? And let's uh, open up our time. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now to come to be speaking to us. I do just ask this morning that we'll be really aware of your presence with us, of you as Emmanuel, God with us, here this morning. Come and speak to us. Show us how it is that you're moving in our lives, the things that you're up to. We just give you this space. Uh, we just thank you for your, your love for us in the ways that you want to come and meet with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So. Isaiah 7. If you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open up to that, Isaiah 7.14. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the front and some in the back. Feel free to jump up and grab one of those. Just a short verse, Isaiah 7.14. Here's what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Pretty famous one. Most of us have probably heard it, seen it on a Christmas card, something along those lines. Emmanuel, God with us. It's kind of a fascinating idea. It's an interesting thing for God to say, for Isaiah to prophesy, for the Israelites to have heard, this concept of God being with us. How does that even work? God, right down in the middle of what we're dealing with, in life today now how is god with us and if we look at it from the israelites perspective which i want to do a little bit of that this morning heads up uh we've come up with three kind of ideas of what god being with us could mean it could just be a nice sentiment god's just kind of being nice he's patting us on the head saying don't worry billy i'm with you when you feel alone there's no monsters under the bed that type of a thing nice, grandfatherly God is with us. Or it could be a theological assertion that he's making, saying, of course you know that I'm with you. Where else would I be? I've told you this many, many times, that I was going to be with you right in the middle of what's going on. If you worship me, I'm here with you. Or it could be a little bit more factual. It can mean that God was getting ready to send somebody who is going to be his voice, his presence with us, with humanity, right in the middle of the mess of what's going on around us. It could be a fact, kind of truth. But if God was with us, then something has to change. Things don't stay the same if God is with us. Things begin to look a little bit differently. And the Israelites would have known that. How could God be with them in the middle of their current situation? And you know, we have this tendency to, to interpret things based off of what's going on in our lives. Do you realize that? You do this all the time. All of us do this all the time. We hear something, and then we interpret it based on how life is, what's going on, how we're feeling about what's going on, all of that. And that's how we act, based off of that. For instance, if I gave kind of a good but generic uh, statement. I said, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life. That's pretty vague. It's open ended, right? I bet that almost every single one of us would have a different interpretation of what that means. If you're sitting here and you're sick, you would say, Yes. Okay, God wants to heal me. I like this one. If you're broke, again, Yes, okay, God's going to provide for me. He's going to give me a new job. He's going to provide financially. He's going to act in some way. If you're dealing with some sort of sin issue, your immediate response may not be yes. It may be, okay, something's going to change in my life. Things are going to look a little bit different. God's going to move, and I'll probably like it in the end, but it might be a little uncomfortable for right now, and so on. Every single one of us has something different going on in our life that we interpret these sorts of things based on, and the Israelites were no different. The Israelites heard all these prophecies about the Messiah that was getting ready to come, and they started interpreting it based on what was going on in their time, in their lives. And for a period of almost a thousand years, that wasn't such a good thing. They didn't have such a great time with what was going on in their lives. I'll give a really, really short version of the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament time. Really, really short, I promise. So sometime around 13 to 1400 BC, and then we continue on for the next four hours. Now, 13 to 1400 BC, they became a nation. They were a self-governing people. Uh, They had either a king or a judge, somebody that was ruling over them, that dictated kind of how life looked, that was in power, all of the things we would expect from a nation. And that lasted for about 600 years. And then around the time of 740 B.C., they became from then on either an exiled or an occupied nation. They weren't in control of very much. They were ruled by other people with other values and other beliefs, whether they were Assyrian or Persian or Babylonian, Roman, a few other smaller ones in between that we most of us haven't heard of. And then they had a very, very small period where they actually ruled themselves again. But for a thousand years, stretching from about 700 BC to way after the life of Jesus, they were occupied. They were ruled by somebody else. They were For hundreds of years, they were an oppressed, exiled, enslaved people group. That was their experience. That was how life was for them for a long period of time, a long period of oppression, of poverty, of frustration, and of of hopelessness. A long period of analyzing these funny prophecies that God kept giving to them. Over hundreds of years of God doing something in their present situation, of God acting in the middle of them, of analyzing and wondering what it was that he was actually going to do, when he was actually going to act. Over hundreds of years, they analyzed this, and their expectations of God, of the Messiah, were based upon those realities were based upon what they had seen happen for hundreds of years. They started to build up this idea of who the Messiah was and what he was going to come to do that wasn't necessarily based on anything God had said, but was really based on what they needed, what they really hoped for in their lives. In order to fill this out, I want to look at two shorter prophecies that God gives, one in Isaiah and one in Jeremiah. So let's read these together. Two prophecies about the Messiah, about the Savior. Isaiah 11, one through 10, or just 1 and 10, says, "'A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious.'" Now, Jeremiah 30 says this, verses 8 through 11, In that day, declares the Lord, I will break break the yokes off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. So we hear a couple of kind of brief thoughts about what the Messiah would look like, what he was going to come and do. And it's based off of these things that the Israelites would start to form this image of who the Messiah was going to be. We read several times in here that the Messiah was going to be from the line of David. Uh, Isaiah said that he was the root of Jesse, which is uh, a funny little term, but Jesse was David's father. So he's saying the same thing, that he was from the lineage of David. David was a former king of Israel, uh, to put it in American terms, which are helpful to us. David was essentially Abraham Lincoln. You can figure picture that, right? He was... He was the man. He was the one that everybody else was based off of. He was the best king that they ever had. He was the just ruler, the wise ruler, the strong one. He ruled with integrity, unlike some of the other kings that they had. He was the good king, the one that everybody wanted to be like, that they still talked about hundreds of years later. And no other king of Israel ever really came close to matching up to him. Not even his son Solomon, who was pretty rich, so that was nice, and it was pretty peaceful. But he also had some pretty big issues with idolatry, and he had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. So you can fill in that blank for yourself. A few few weaknesses there. Uh, None of the other kings ever matched up to David. None of them. Except for the Messiah, God tells us. Here was going to come this guy who was actually going to match up to David, who was going to be the ruler that they had all been longing for for a really long time, that they had all been looking forward to. He would right the wrongs of the former kings of the people, and all would be as it once was. And they read Jeremiah, and they read about this person coming and restoring peace and order to israel bringing security he'd restore their land a land that really mattered a lot to them that was promised to them by god that was given to them he'd be their king and they'd happily be his people he'd bring salvation to them in the way that they wanted And that salvation and restoration would mean that, once again, that God was actually with them, that he was in the midst of them. God had left them, so to speak. Obviously, if he's giving prophetic words, he's still with them. But he wasn't with them in the ways that they had always wanted him to be with them during this period of exile and of occupation. The temple was torn down. The places of worship weren't the same. But when the Messiah would come, when this person in the line of David would come, all of that would be restored. Their worship would go back to how it was. God would be their God. He would be in the middle of them, and they would be his people. The Israelites were looking for a very specific Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah. They wanted somebody who would bring political freedom and political power. A people who had been exiled, occupied, and enslaved longed to be free. We can understand that. That makes sense, that that's what they would long for. They wanted the Messiah to come as a warrior king, to come like David with the sword in his hand, with a willingness to sit on a throne, to have political power, to take back what had been taken from them, and to restore everything as it once was in the good old days. They wanted somebody to come and to fulfill all of their wildest dreams and to make them once again the people of God. Not a people of God, but the people of God. There's a big difference between those two. The one that was the light to everybody else, that God spoke to, that God was with. And if you've read the Gospels, Jesus wasn't that kind of Messiah. He was different than their expectations. Look at Matthew 1, 20 through 25 with me. We see an angel coming and speaking to Joseph, who was uh, Jesus's uh, stepfather, we'll call him. Here's what it says. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, And he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus was the answer to all of those prophecies about who the Messiah was. Every single one of them was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the one from the line of David. He was the king that was returning. He was God with us. Wasn't is. He still is. And it was so important to God that this be understood, that this be realized, that he sent all kinds of angels to talk to all sorts of people. He sent an angel here to talk to Joseph. He sent another one to talk to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He sent some angels to blow up the night sky and to wake up a bunch of shepherds and tell them what was going on. He made some wise men in a far country aware of a star and pay attention to that star and start walking towards it so that they would see Jesus and know who he was and start to spread it. God was so invested in making sure that everybody knew the reality of what was happening, that He kind of spared no expense. He sent everybody to tell them clearly, point blank, God has come. God is with us. Jesus is the Messiah, and that he's come to accomplish everything that God had said that he was going to accomplish. He was going to bring freedom, salvation, healing, hope, restoration, all of it, the whole thing. And the best part is that his plan was a lot bigger than anyone expected, so much bigger. It wasn't just for one people, it was for all peoples, everywhere, everyone. So he sent them so that all people could know, so that all people could experience the reality of who Jesus was and what he was bringing. His plan of salvation was much bigger than Israel's, than what the Israelites would have expected. It reached out much farther. It brought more joy and hope than anyone could have ever imagined. And because of that, a lot of people missed it because it looked so different than their expectations dictated that it should look. The Jewish people of Jesus' time were so... uh, they were so strongly focused on a certain type of Messiah. They were so certain that Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets had prophesied about a military leader, about a warrior king that would be happy with political power, that would come with a sword, that would lead them into battle, that it became impossible for many of them to reconcile what they saw in Jesus with the reality of what their expectations were. The two could not match. They couldn't line up because their expectations dictated something so different from what was happening. The reality is that Jesus just wasn't the type of Messiah that most of the Israelites wanted him to be. And with that reality, they were faced with a choice. Do they choose to place their hope in the Messiah who had come? who was actually there with them, who was working and acting, or do they just keep waiting? Do they decide that their expectations, that their plan was better than God's, and that they were just kind of going to ignore this one and keep hoping that something else would come that fit what they were looking for? And many people chose to just keep waiting to not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. Their expectations had been so hardened by suffering and by pain that they weren't able to acknowledge a different sort of plan, a bigger plan that looked different than what they expected, than what they wanted. They could no longer accept an answer other than the one that they wanted. So they chose not to. And, you know, I'm sure that many or most of us have Had instances where we've really prayed for something hard, where we've really wanted something. Maybe it was somebody that was sick to be healed, a relationship to be restored. We were really broke and we needed God to provide because we weren't sure where money was going to come from. We've all been in situations where we've really cried out long and hard for a specific answer in a way that we felt we needed. And God gave a slightly different answer. Because God does that sometimes. His plans look a little bit different than ours. We've had times of pain and suffering and heartache, times when we wanted God to intervene in a specific way. So we prayed those specific prayers and we waited for that specific answer. And it just didn't come in the specific way that we wanted it to. He acted, but he acted differently. And in each and every one of those instances, we're faced with a choice. Do we ignore what God's up to, or do we embrace how he's moving? Do we open up ourselves to recognize how God's moving in our lives? And you know, for me personally, I experienced this reality just over about seven and a half years ago uh, when my dad died. He had had cancer in his spine, his his hips, uh, and his ribs for about two and a half years, which was a pretty brutal way to to have cancer. It was hard. Um, When he first got the diagnosis, he was given six months, and he ended up living two and a half years after that. So God really acted in that in certain ways. But throughout those two and a half years, we prayed really, really, really hard for one thing that I'm sure you all know what it was, for complete and total healing. That's just what we were praying for. My dad was a pastor. The whole church was praying. Other churches were praying. Other pastors were praying. Some of my friends, at one point, like 15 of my friends came up with me to my parents' house. They lived about an hour away, and just because they wanted to lay hands on him and pray for him. We had lots of people that loved us really well that were praying for the same thing, for the same response. And like I said, he died. And my dad and I were really close. We, I was kind of my dad's mini-me. Uh, you want to put up the, uh, the picture there, Blake? Um, I wore a brown cardigan. I guess we're, we're keeping the trend going 25 years later. 28 years later, I don't know what I was. Thankfully, I'm not wearing that sweater. That was pretty amazing. Uh, But my dad was a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor. Uh, We both read a lot. We both liked sports. We were just pretty similar in a lot of ways. And our bond was really strengthened by the fact that my mom passed away when I was nine months old. And so for a year and a half to two years, it was just the two of us. And that was our life. It was hard for dad uh, being a pastor with a nine-month-old and yeah just not quite sure how to how to process through it all and he remarried about uh two years later and then they had a couple of girls and our family filled back out again but there was always kind of a different bond between the two of us because of the loss of my mom obviously And so for me, I had spent a lot of my childhood kind of grieving the parent that I never knew, that I didn't get a chance to know, uh, that I couldn't even if I wanted to get to know. And now I was faced with the reality that I was going to lose the parent that I did know, which was not a fun thing to realize and just kind of start to come to grips with. And so over those last two weeks before my dad died, he went into hospice and I thought hospice meant that other people did everything, and that wasn't the reality. Uh, It meant that, because he was at home, so it meant that for us, that we did a lot, and some nurses came by a couple times a day and helped us when we needed, which was good. Uh, But it was a lot to kind of go through with your dad. So for the last two weeks, we took shifts. My mom and youngest sister did days, and my older sister and I did nights, and that's just what we did for a couple of weeks. So one Saturday afternoon, late afternoon, my mom called me, and I could tell that something was wrong, and she just asked if I could drive home, and so I jumped in the car and came up. She said she needed help, and when I got home, she came out to the driveway and told me that uh, he, my dad, had basically stopped responding, Um, and she just couldn't move him on her own, and she really needed help. So we went upstairs, and uh, yep, he wasn't talking, really. He had just kind of overnight lost ability to, to connect with us verbally. and so And he was kind of obstinate at the same time. So it was a difficult situation, to say the least. So we're upstairs, and we're trying to move him just from the wheelchair to his bed, the simplest of motions, and it just wasn't happening. And after an hour and a half to two hours— I finally encouraged my mom to go call hospice because we couldn't do it on our own. And she went downstairs, and I sat on the bed and just looked at him. My dad hadn't acknowledged me in those two hours. He hadn't said anything to me. Um, I wasn't sure quite what was going on in his mind, to be honest. And I just sat down, and I was just obviously broken up. And I looked at him, and I said, Dad, I love you. And he looked up at me. And he said, Stephen, I love you too. And that was the last thing I ever heard him say. He died 24 hours later. That was the last thing that I ever heard my dad say to anybody. I was with him the entire time. I took the night shift that night, and so my mom and my sisters could sleep. And so I sat in his room with him, uh, just listening to his really raspy, shallow breathing, and just prayed hard all night long, because I didn't want him to die when it was just me. Kind of truth time. I knew I couldn't handle it. Um, And I said, God, I do not want to be alone. This is not what I signed up for right here. I need somebody else with me. Uh, You can't let this happen right now. Um, And so I was just sitting there, just praying, just asking God to somehow keep him going. And as I sat there in this dark room, just me and my dad, I felt the most real presence of Jesus that I've ever felt in my life. Probably that I will ever feel in my life. I knew that he was there. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. But I knew without a doubt, when you feel that alone, you know if somebody else is in the, is in the room. You know what I'm saying? You're very aware of it. And I knew in that moment that Jesus was with me. And I knew he was here with my dad, loving on both of us. He didn't heal my dad. My dad still passed away later on that next day. He didn't do the things that I had asked him to do for two and a half years. But in the moment that I needed him the most, and I think in the moment that my dad needed him the most, He was so obviously there that there was no denying it. And that, I think, is the reality of what it means for Emmanuel, God with us. We have all kinds of expectations. We pray all kinds of ways based off of what we really want, based off of what we're really hoping for. And they're good hopes. They're good expectations. They're good things that we want, ways that we want life to end up. But God knows more. He has more written out than we could ever figure out. And I can guarantee you that even if he doesn't do the thing that you're hoping that he's going to do, so to speak, he's going to do more than that. He's going to be there with you when you truly need him, where you truly need him, the whole way through it. That's the reality of Jesus coming and being here with us. You know, as we come to an end this morning, I know Christmas is hard for some people. I'm sure some of us have lost people this year uh, that we we would normally see this time of year. I'm sure there's some of us that have different things going on in our life, sick relatives, financial issues, our own Uh, sicknesses, things that we're dealing with that make it really hard at this time of year to be happy-go-lucky, cheery, uh, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town type of folks. But I know something about the promises that God made to us. The reason that we're celebrating what we're celebrating is because Jesus is truly with us. He didn't just come, he wasn't just in a manger, but he's still here with us today in the exact way that we need. However that looks, he's here with us today in our moments of need. God is with us. And so I want to just invite us this morning to make this choice in our lives. Do we want to place our hope in the Savior who's with us, or do we want to keep looking for something we think is better? Because it's not. I'll give you the spoiler. It's not better. He does know what, exactly what we need, and he is with us exactly where we need him to be. Do we accept the salvation that Jesus is bringing, or do we place our hope in something else? The gift of Jesus has always, throughout time, been sent to people who are hurting who are suffering, who need him to come and to be with them, who need him to come and to act. That's no different today. He's still doing that today. He's still coming and moving in your life in the way that you need him to. He's still drawing you close to himself in the exact way that you need him to, even if it looks slightly different than how you expected it to be. He's still doing it. He's still answering those prayers He's still real with us. The gift of Jesus is always coming with hope. Always. There's always freedom. There's always salvation. There's always hope in it. And that's our reality this morning. If Brian and the worship team wants to come back up, I just want to encourage you this morning to embrace Jesus, however that looks. If you're in an amazing place and you're super joyful about what's going on in your life, then embrace Jesus in that. Embrace the reality that you can see him moving and you know exactly what he's doing. If that's not your reality, embrace the Jesus who's with you. And ask him to show himself because I think he wants to. As we worship this morning, the worship team is going to lead us in a couple of songs. And I just encourage you to embrace the Jesus who's with you. Wherever you're at, ask him to show yourself to you, and I guarantee that he will. I don't make a ton of promises about what God will do, but that one I can guarantee for you. If you ask him to reveal himself, if you ask him to show you how he's moving in your life, he's going to do it. Amen? If you want to stand i just want to pray as we go into this time of worship we just thank you jesus i just thank you this morning for just the reality that you are here with us and i just ask right now as we begin to worship that you will just make that so clear to each and every one of us that there's no way we can avoid it make us just ridiculously aware of you of you here, of you acting, of you moving. And I pray for grace, for any ways that probably each and every one of us have set up expectations for how we want you to act. Help us to see you moving regardless of our expectations. Help us to find joy in your activity, even if it doesn't look the exact way that we wanted it to be. And if it does look the exact way we wanted it to be, yay, thank you. (laughs) We appreciate that as well. But reveal yourself to us this morning, Jesus. Come and be here, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.